Good morning, everyone. Glad you all could make it out after that little wintry mix yesterday. But I see that it must have fried all your memories because clearly no one got the memo of Ugly Sweater Day. <laughs> well, this is a New Year's ugly sweater, not a Christmas ugly sweater, just to be clear. And it was also pointed out to me this morning that it's actually a woman's sweater because the buttons are on the other side. So I, I'm all over the place this morning. <laughs> but if you'd like to follow along, there, are, there is a handout in your bulletin front and back. And as Christmas is over, many of us have now turned our attention to New Year's. And when we think of New Year's, what's the first thing that we typically think about? Resolutions. New Year's resolutions. And so I was thinking about what I was going to resolve to do this year. Clearly it was not to be a better dresser. <laughs> but how many of you have actually made a New Year's resolution in the past? Okay, I've made several New Year's resolutions in the past and, and failed miserably each time. Anyone actually keep their New Year's resolution in the past? Okay, I see a couple of overachievers out there. Very good. <laughs> now, the Bible doesn't say too much about New Year's resolutions or resolutions in general, but it does talk a lot about being made new. And so this morning... On the doorstep of the new year, I felt like it would be appropriate for us to talk about what it really means to be made new, what it really means to have a new identity, and then look at how Satan tries to keep us from living that new identity out. So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. Father, I pray that you would just fill me now with your Holy Spirit, and my words would be your words, that nothing that proceeds from my lips would be anything other than what you intend. Lord, I pray that you would also prepare each of our hearts to receive the truth of what your scripture says about the believer in Jesus Christ, and that we would know that truth, we would walk in that truth, and that we would not be deceived by what the enemy and the world has to say. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, before we focus on our main text, verse 17, that's where we're really going to park this morning, it's important to see how Paul gets to that powerful statement. It's important to see the progression of how he gets there. So, are there any mathematicians in the audience today, any people who would consider themselves pretty logical thinkers? All right. I would consider myself a pretty logical thinker. And so when I read Paul's writings, I really appreciate how he goes through very rationally and orderly. It's, it's one statement building on another. You really see this in many of his epistles. And you see words like so, but, for, therefore, because, each one building on the next. And that's the case here in this chapter. He uses those adverbs type words over 20 times in this chapter alone. And so we see that Paul is stringing together a series of statements that go all the way back to the beginning of the letter, which ultimately conclude 
with verse 17. They do continue on, but verse 17 is a real climax of what he is writing here. So before we get to 17, we have to know what it's pointing back to, right? And so we're going to start in verse 14. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to dig very deeply into verses 14 through 16. It would take a, more sermons than I have this morning, right? And so I'm going to take the liberty of just summarizing very quickly what Paul is getting at in verses 14 through 16. So we look at verse 14 and we see that it starts with the word, the word for. So we know that that too is pointing back to something. But again, we're not going to look at that we are just going to look at verse 14 itself. So what is verse 14 saying? Well, in verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ died for everyone. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has also died. Paul doesn't state overtly here, but he writes in his other epistles that not only has the person who's put his faith in Jesus Christ died to their old life, but they have also raised again and received a new life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So verses 14 and 15 tell us that Christ died for all, and anyone who puts their faith in him has died to their old self and has new life. Then verse 16 explains that because Christ can't be viewed according to worldly standards and perspectives, the believer in Jesus Christ also cannot be viewed by worldly standards and perspectives. The world cannot define the identity of the Christ follower. So then, how are Christians to be viewed and understood? What is the identity of the Christian? And that brings us to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anyone here watch Sports Center? Okay, we got some sports fans out here. Now, if you're like me, I'm not enough of a fan to actually sit and watch a whole game. Okay, I, I have to just admit that to you. I will not sit and watch an entire sports game, but I will catch the highlights on SportsCenter. And so, this morning, there is so much depth to this verse, I could never hope to get to it all. But I just want to give us the highlights. I just want to give us the SportsCenter edition of 2 Corinthians 5.17, alright? So we're going to go through it section by section, and we're going to hit the highlights. So we start off with the first word. The first word is, therefore... Therefore, so we see that this verse begins with an adverb that points back. And, and we know that those verses that we just summarized, 14 through 16, are pointing forward to this verse. So we need to know that this verse is a conclusion, a culmination of statements that Paul has been making all along. Paul is continuing his argument here, concluding in this verse that life in Christ means that we are a new creation, that we have received a brand new identity. Well, who has received that new identity? The next section, it says, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, anyone means no exceptions and no exclusions. This, this truth of a new identity isn't just for super-Christians, <laughs> It's for anyone at all who has genuinely put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, if you have done that, but maybe you're still struggling with some sin, maybe there's something in your life that 
has been difficult for you to get over, you're still not excluded from this new identity. And I want us to hear that loud and clear. Because this is one of Satan's chief lies that he'll tell us. Is that because you're struggling with something, you're not really a Christian. You're just, you're just thinking you are, talking you are. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that deception later on. But if you are a child of God, you are a new creation, and your sinful life will not keep you from God's love. In fact, nothing can keep you from God's love, according to Romans 8, right? However, we have to notice that this is a conditional statement. This is a conditional statement. It says, if anyone which means that if anyone is not in Christ, the old has not passed away, and they are still a slave to their sin and condemned to eternal death. Now, if you're not a believer, this, this thought might frighten you. And, and maybe it should frighten you. But I'm not, I'm not trying to be a fearmonger here. I'm just trying to present the truth of what the Bible says. This is, this is what Scripture tells us. And so I want to present it to you and offer you an invitation to become one of those who are in Christ, to become one of those who have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. This is an invitation that's open to absolutely anyone and everyone. There are no exceptions whatsoever. You merely have to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ and be made new. But what does it mean to be in Christ? What does that mean? I want to look at this on three levels, okay? Three levels that we're going to look at what it means to be in Christ. On the first level, really this is just a description of the believer's new identity. In other words, it describes those who have put faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. It describes those who recognize that they cannot save themselves, that only Jesus Christ can save them. But if we look a little deeper to the second level, we'll see that to be in Christ also addresses our spiritual position. It addresses how God the Father sees us, what our position is in His eyes. Now, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ or in Him, over 160 times in his writings. He uses it all the time. And so, one would think that it's pretty important that we know what it means, right? And so, to really understand the meaning, we have to look at the Greek word, in and there are, two, there are two Greek words for in, but the one that's being used here is not referring to location. It's not referring to location. Instead, it's referring to union. Union with Christ. Allow me to illustrate this point. <laughs> Raise your hand if you were ever a baby. All right. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, Uncle Andy, I can only assume that you were cloned, right? Every single one of us here was at one time a baby. Every single one of us here spent at least six months inside of our mother's womb, right? And so we were physically located inside our mother's womb. Meanwhile, during that time in your mother's womb, and until shortly after your birth, you were also united to your mother via an umbilical cord, right? And once you were born, your umbilical cord was severed, leaving you with a scar that we commonly refer to as the belly button. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't know it was a scar. I just thought it was just some crazy, you know, thing that your body does. But I did learn as I researched it this week, because I wanted to make sure I was thoroughly accurate, that not only is it a scar, but 90% of belly buttons are also innies, 
just in case you were wondering. No one really knows how they get their shape, and the great majority of belly button lint is bluish gray, just in case you were wondering. All right, that is a scientifically proven fact. But, but I digress. <laughs> Location versus union. Location versus union. It's the latter of these two. Union, that the Greek word in is referring to here. Like the union of a mother and child. We are not physically located inside of Christ like a baby in utero. Instead, we have a special union with Christ. But unlike an umbilical cord... Once that union is formed, it can never, ever be severed. It can never be broken. Once you have genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ, it is formed for good. So, why is that important, you might ask? Why is it important that we understand our union with Christ? Well, just as a baby would be dead if the umbilical cord was severed too soon. So too is every person in this entire earth dead if they are not united to Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thankfully, being united with Christ means that we have life and have been set free from eternal punishment. And by the way, the Bible is very, very clear that no matter what sin you may have committed or struggle with, the Lord can and will forgive you. He can set you free from the bondage of anything and give you new life. All you have to do is repent of that sin and genuinely put your faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter how bad you think your life has been, no matter what sin you may have committed, maybe it's one of the laundry list of things listed right in that verse, there is always hope. Because God is a God of mercy and he will extend forgiveness who, to those who genuinely repent of that sin and put their faith in Jesus. So here then is the key to being united with Christ. When we're united with Christ, we are washed clean. And our old life is washed away and we receive a whole new identity. Which brings us to our third level of analysis of what it means to be in Christ. This also refers to our Lord's generous dispensation of gifts and privileges. He's given us amazing things, amazing gifts and privileges. Now, we can't dive into each of these truths, but I just want to read a few of the many things that Scripture tells us happens when we're united with Christ. First of all, you are seated with Christ in heaven. You also become God's child. You become God's friend. 
You become a citizen of heaven. You receive complete forgiveness. You receive Christ's power and authority. You receive specific spiritual gifts. And you are given a specific work assignment that only you can fulfill. Every one of these things and many more that Scripture promises make up your new identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. They make up who you now are. And they are what define you. Not what your old life was. And we immediately receive these things when we are united with Christ. And so it's in receiving, understanding, believing in, and living out this new identity that sets the Christian apart from the world. So knowing your identity, knowing these truths, and living within them is what allows the Christian to overcome the snares and the temptations and the lies of the enemy. Of course, that also means that undermining your confidence in your new identity is one of Satan's chief schemes. Well, why is that, you might ask? Why is that? Well, think about it. If you don't have confidence in your new identity or understand who the Bible says you are as a believer, you'll begin to fall for Satan's lies and you'll be deceived into living in sin. This is why Paul is being exceedingly clear here about what happens to a believer when they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It says, He is a new creation. He is a new creation. Now, let's recognize right away that the verse doesn't say that the Christian ought to be a new creation. It says he is a new creation. So what does it mean to be a new creation? Let's start with the first word, new. In the Greek, there are two words that we typically translate as new. The first word is what we typically think of when we say new. And it refers to being new in time or chronology. New in time or chronology. For example, if we say, Happy New Year, right? That is new in time. But the second Greek word for new, the one that's used in this verse, is the one that we want to know and understand, and it has nothing to do with time. Instead, it means new in quality or character. New in quality or character. So, how many of us have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Now, I'm not talking about The Hobbit. That's the one that just came out. It's very good, by the way. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Would recommend you go see it. I'm talking about the first three movies that came out several years ago. Now, there's a character in the Lord of the Rings whose name is Gandalf the Grey. And he's the wizard in the movie. And Gandalf the Grey is pretty strong. He's, he's got a lot of good stuff going for him. But there is a wizard who's more powerful than he is. All right? He's, he's the bad guy. And, and as you're watching the first movie, and you get to one of the climactic scenes in the movie you see that Gandalf the Grey fights this giant monster and he falls into the abyss. He falls into the abyss. But in the second movie, when Gandalf makes his glorious reappearance, he has been transformed into Gandalf the White. And he is more powerful wiser, better than he ever was before and ever could have been under his own power. He, he's like Gandalf 2.0, right? 
He's, he's better in quality and character. He has been made new. And that is the Greek word for new that the Bible uses here. Something brand new, better than ever before. But not only are we new, we are a new creation. We are a new creation. And the Greek word for creation here referred to something that had been newly brought into existence that had never before existed. So, for example, when God spoke the universe into existence, that was creation. It had never existed before. It just was something from nothing. So if we put those two words together here, we see that Paul is saying that the change that takes place in someone when they become a follower in Jesus Christ is so vast, so absolute, so dramatic, that as if the individual has been completely remade into a brand new person, one that's far better than anything that they could have ever been before. And to really drive this message home, Paul adds that the old has passed away. The old has passed away. And, and really, in the Greek, this means that the old has disappeared. It's vanished. It's, it's gone. Your old identity has completely disappeared. And if we would get into the grammatical construction of, of this little phrase here, we'd see that this is a completed and irrevocable action. Which means that the instant you genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, your old self disappears. Your old identity has passed away and is gone forever. It's a completed action. And your new identity is there to stay. You cannot lose it. It's irrevocable. This means that your old way of thinking, your prejudices, your motives, your misconceptions and old habits have all disappeared from God's viewpoint, covered by your new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to be, be very clear. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. I'm sure we can all attest to that, right? I can certainly attest to that. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Just because you've been made new doesn't mean the pull of the old identity has disappeared from your flesh. But in terms of your identity, in terms of who you are in the eyes of God, those things no longer define who you are. And you now have the power to overcome them and walk in the light as you mature and grow in your faith. So yes, the old has passed away. And yes, it still has a pull on us. And we may still fall back from time to time. But that doesn't mean that that is what defines you any longer. And so that's why Paul quickly follows up this statement with the next. He says, Behold, the new has come. Behold, the new has come. Look, everyone, listen. The new has come. Your old ways are gone in God's eyes, covered by your identity in Jesus Christ. And your new identity is here to stay. You're a new creation. Many of us have probably heard of St. Augustine, right? He is remembered as one of the fathers of the faith and revered as a brilliant theologian. But he wasn't always thought of that way. Some of you have probably heard the story, but it illustrates the point well. St. Augustine, though he was raised in a Christian home, decided that he would taste the fruit of the world for a time in his early 20s. And so 
he would often frequent the bars and brothels in his hometown and enjoying the pleasures that the world had to offer. Now, eventually, he recognized what it meant to genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he did that, and he was born again. He was made new. He was a new creation. Now, after he had become saved, as he was walking down the street one day, he came across one of his former love interests. And he saw her, and she saw him, and she called out to him, Augustine, come here, it's me. And he saw her, and he turned and ran the other way. (laughs) Undaunted by that, she got up out of her seat and ran after him. And she said, Augustine, why do you flee? It's me. And as he was running away, you can see the words behind me, he called over his shoulder and he said, but it is not me. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, perhaps you can think of someone, and maybe it's you, who used to be pretty rotten, who people didn't really care to spend too much time with. But then they became a Christian, and things started to change. Maybe the change was quick, Maybe the change was slow and gradual. Maybe they went back and forth for a little bit. But there was change. There was change. And that change is the evidence that the person's identity has been remade. Now, will they be perfect? Of course not. We all still mess up. But as they become more and more like the person who they are now united with, Jesus Christ, they will gradually take on more and more of his characteristics and qualities to the point that they can say, the old me is dead, it's disappeared, behold, a new me has come. Now, one final highlight as we look at the construction of this verse, and this is really important, so I want us all to get this, okay? Becoming a new creation and receiving a new identity is not something that you can do to yourself. It's not something that you can do to yourself. No one can recreate themselves into something that's completely new. You can improve upon yourself, perhaps, like if you would go to the gym and work out, you might get bigger, faster, stronger. Or if I would go home and and shave this hideous beard, some would say that I would improve my image, right? But that would just be mere improvement. That wouldn't be creation. No one can recreate ourselves despite our best efforts, despite our living pretty good lives, Despite our many good deeds and good works, no one has the ability to completely remake themselves into something that has never existed before. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. Yet, unfortunately, that doesn't stop many of us from trying anyway. (laughs) From relying on our own efforts anyway. Perhaps some of you have heard of the fresco known as Eke Omo. Eke Omo. Well, this this centuries-old fresco was taken to a Spanish church and over the decades fell into disrepair. It began to disintegrate into paint chips. You can see it behind me. Seeing that it was deteriorating, a well-meaning 80-year-old congregant of the church, who considered herself a pretty talented artist, decided that she was going to touch up the painting. You know, just 
just fix it up. Just, just touch up the troubled areas. And so when no one was looking, she snuck into the church and she fixed the painting. And she gave her best effort. She gave everything that her artistic training and talent could offer. And when she was finished, she thought that she did a pretty darn good job. Now, if we look at the painting as it appears behind me, we'll see that she didn't do a very good job, did she? Now, I'm no art critic, but when I look at that painting, instead of reminding me of Jesus Christ, it now reminds me of someone completely different. Okay? Someone completely different. If I can bring him up on the screen. Go. It's not working. Come on now. There we go. There we go. There we go. Reminds me of Andre the Giant. Anyone ever see The Princess Bride? Great movie, right? Great movie, right? I could kill you now, right? That's what he's saying. <laughs> now, we laugh at the botched attempt of the old woman to repair the formerly beautiful fresco, but friends, when we try to live as new creations under our own power, we're doing the exact same thing. Despite how capable we may think we are, despite how good we think we could do, we will only ever mess things up when we try to live apart from Jesus Christ. We are only a new creation in Christ, not in ourselves or in anyone else. And Scripture is exceedingly clear on this point. Acts chapter 4 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yet, despite this clear truth in Scripture, many people choose to either disregard it or not believe it at all. Why? Why? Well, if you've been here over the past couple months, you know that we've been studying Nehemiah. And we've seen that we have an enemy who is an excellent schemer, who's trying his best to keep us from learning what our identity is and living that out. And we've seen many of his schemes. But I think all of them, I believe all of those schemes can really be funneled back to one main scheme, and that is deception. Deception. That's Satan's main goal, is to deceive us. Now, Christ knew this. Christ knew this about Satan when he called him the father of lies. And later on in Scripture, Revelation describes Satan as the deceiver of the whole world. So why don't people embrace a new identity in Jesus Christ? To me, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. They've been deceived. They have bought into the lie of the enemy. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my son Jackson decided that he needed a haircut. Not wanting to wait to go to my dad, a.k.a. the barber, he decided that he would give himself a haircut. Now, when he had cut his hair, my wife found him afterwards sitting quietly to himself, acting as if nothing at all had happened. She went up into him and she asked, Jackson, what happened to your head? He, he looked at her as innocent as he could. Nothing happened, Mom. What do you mean? Why do you ask? Jackson, there's a bunch of hair missing from the front of your head. 
Really? He said as if this was some revelation to him. <laughs> Jackson, how'd that happen in your hair? Um, Mom, I... It must have shrunk. <laughs> it shrunk, really. Is that what happened? Well, maybe it didn't shrink. But I think it just fell out. It just fell out. J Jackson... Hair can't just fall out like that, okay? There's still the roots in your head. It doesn't just fall out like that. Now, after she told him that, he sat quietly for a while, contemplating the fact that hair can't just fall out like that. And so eventually he spoke up quietly. I, I think someone must have cut it. <laughs> oh, someone must have cut it. Who... Who do you think cut it, Jackson? Um, it must have been Connor. <laughs> Connor must have cut it. Connor is his little brother, three years old. <laughs> Connor cut your hair. Are you sure about that, Jackson? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's who cut it. Jackson, why don't you tell me the truth? Mom... I, I can't remember the truth. <laughs> Jackson, think harder. I, I, guess it, I guess it was me. <laughs> now, when I got home later that day, I asked him, Jackson, why did you cut your hair? And he looked at me and he said, very matter-of-factly, my head was hot. I guess when you're six, that's as good of a reason as any, right? <laughs> your head's hot, you cut your hair off. <laughs> now, now, when someone is lying to us, and we know that they're lying, it's easy not to be fooled, right? It's easy not to be deceived when we know someone is telling us a lie. The problem with many of the devil's lies is that we don't know that they're lies. And therefore, we start to believe them, and we become deceived. Now, as we apply this verse, we need to hear the truth of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to know what our identity is so that we're not deceived. So that when the enemy speaks those lies, whispers them subtly into our ear, we'll be able to recognize them as lies and disregard them. Now, if only this were as easy as dealing with the lies of a child, right? Unfortunately, Satan is far craftier and smarter than any of us will ever be. And so it's easy for us to fall under the sway of a lie and unwittingly buy into it. And as we've already said, one of the chief aims of Satan is to keep us from embracing our identity in Christ. And if we do embrace an identity in Christ, to keep us from living that out. So in the closing minutes, I just want to very briefly look at four lies, four lies that the enemy will try to get us to believe. Okay? Four lies that the enemy will try to get us to believe. The first one is that he will try to convince us that we don't need a new identity, that, that we're a good person, that we got things under control. Unfortunately, much of the world is caught in this lie, especially right here in the United States. And if that's you sitting in the pews this morning, I don't want to come across like I'm condemning you or judging you. I just want you to hear as, as lovingly as I can say that you're living a lie. That there's no such thing as being good enough. Because the standard is perfection. And none of us are perfect. We all fall short. 
But the second lie that Satan will try to get us to believe is that we aren't worthy of a new identity. That we're too far gone. That the life that we've lived... Oop, went too far. The life that we lived is too much for God to forgive. Those who are caught in this lie need to know that nothing they could do is ever too great for God's forgiveness, as we've already talked about. And if you genuinely repent from your sin, you will be forgiven. No ifs, ands, or buts. It, It will happen. You will be forgiven. But the lies of Satan aren't just for those who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. Satan will lie to the Christian just as quickly as he'll lie to the non-Christian. He he loves to deceive the Christian, especially about who they are in Christ. And so the first lie that he'll tell us is that we're failures. That we haven't received all that Scripture has promised us. And this can lead to a negative self-image, depression, discouragement, and feelings of hopelessness. Because the deceived Christian doesn't know their identity in Christ, they spiral downward in despair. Now friends, if that's you, you need to recognize that all of the negative thoughts, all of the negative self-talk are lies from the enemy designed to keep you from the truth of who you really are. And, and this is something, I mean, I've been a pastor for what, six months? I'm like, I'm like a baby pastor. And, and this is something that I have seen over and over again with people right here in our church. People who don't accept the truth of who they are in Christ and are deceived and living a lie. We need to come around each other, encourage one another, lift one another up, and reaffirm the truth of what your identity is in Jesus Christ. Now, the final trick that Satan pulls is that he gets us to deceive ourselves. He gets us to deceive ourselves. He gets us to believe that everything is fine, that we don't need to address anything in our lives, that that the sermon that you're listening to right now doesn't really apply to you. And so we do nothing. Pretty soon we start believing those lies and we just stop listening altogether. Now, Scripture specifically warns us against this when it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Elsewhere it says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Satan wants to deceive us. He wants us to think that everything's fine and stop us from progressing and maturing in our faith. That's how he operates. If we keep hearing the truth and ignoring it, or telling ourselves that it doesn't apply to us, or thinking that we have everything all figured out, we're believing the enemy's lies and we're not walking in our identity as new creations. We're just living a lie. We're just living in a fantasy world. Who here remembers The Matrix? The first one, the second, the third one were just meh. But the first one was pretty good, right? And what was the premise of that movie? The entire human race was living a lie. They were enslaved by an enemy that had weaved a fantasy world around them, and they had no idea. Friends, if our eyes aren't opened to the truth, 
by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and hearing the truth of what Scripture says about who we are. We're just living in a fantasy world. We're just going along our lives in the matrix, a pawn of the enemy. Friends, this new year, let's put aside the deceptions and embrace the truth. Let's, every one of us, resolve to become new. Resolve to no longer live in the matrix that Satan is trying to get us to walk in, but instead walk in the truth of a new identity in Jesus Christ. I urge those of you here who haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ to resolve to be made new in Jesus Christ. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, resolve to put aside the lies and walk in the truth of your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. Those are resolutions that are worth keeping and striving towards. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you have made us to be when we put our faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would just dissolve the lies that we may be listening to, that we might recognize those things as lies and that we would push them aside, that we would take those thoughts captive and that we would walk in the truth of who we are when we become united with your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just thank you that you loved us so much that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died and overcame death and rose again, and that through him we too can have life. Lord, we just want to ask that you bless us this week and this entire year as we go into 2013. Lord, I pray a special blessing on all of those here that they would walk in their identity as believers in Jesus Christ, that they would not be deceived. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.